Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I am really effing great. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. Happy birthday to our brother, Dan. Thank you on behalf of him, Leo's <laughs> in the building. Everybody else is kicked out. <laughs> we are here to fix this bitch. Wait, I'm talking about cancers did nothing. Uh, Leo's the free before Gemini's 11. did nothing. Hard bottoms only. Pisces, Capricorn. Drink specials all for all you the Leo's. Did nothing this year. <laughs> Leos are here to fix 2020. Oh, my God. This is the energy we need. Wow. We need to turn this bitch around. This is, this is a lot of astrology for uh, for early in the morning. Listen, happy birthday to you, Jeff. Happy birthday to Dan. Happy birthday to Peter Rosenberg. Happy birthday to Shiv Pandya. Happy birthday to Torian Blakeney. This, you're like the DJ at a strip club. <laughs> <I> know, yeah. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> shout, out the, to, shout out to all the Leos. That's right. Yeah. All the different sections. Uh, mm-hmm. Happy birthday to you all. Everybody who's celebrating today. Um, and you know what? Wishing you all a wonderful year ahead. I want to shout out, Jeff, uh, some other people. Everybody who's been reaching out to us this week and was like, yo, thank you for that Rick Ross 10th anniversary Teflon Don episode. Yeah, I mean, it was a great episode. I'm really happy it came together and came together the way it did. I think that you especially did a great job putting it together, I all think, the editing. I think we did a great job together. L- listen, you don't have to convince me to take credit for things <laughs> I didn't do. I'm a Leo. But I... um. I, I think it's a great format, and I, I think that we can do some really cool things with it uh, moving forward. All right. I want to mention that we have a Patreon that people can join and contribute to. It is a way to be a part of this thing. It's is a two-man operation. We do do everything from booking to editing to hosting to promoting and all that stuff. Yep. And Soup to nuts. With your help, it makes things a lot easier. So patreon.com slash it's the real is where you go for that. Yes. Even if you do not support what we are doing, it is my birthday once again. Yeah. And so I really feel like <laughs> patreon.com. You should go to patreon.com slash it's the real and donate would, uh, $2 or $200,000. I would also like to mention that we have brand new t-shirts for sale that I had nothing to do with. I just said those look great. Jeff designed them. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. It's thereal.com slash shop. Go check those out right there. Jeff, this episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real features Yusuf Abdul Qadir, the director of the New York Civil Liberties Union, a clip of him speaking with the Syracuse City leadership about police officers and taxpayer funds and the demands we as a people have of our government was all over the internet recently, and I want to play that clip right now. Um, what percent of the police live in a city? Uh, what about 5% or so? 5%, so 95% don't live in the city. Yes, so when you say that the vast majority of the percentage goes towards salaries, etc., yes, fringe benefits, that means that they take their money on 81, go to outside the city, pay taxes in those communities that have some of the best schools while we have an underfunded school district. $60 million up. So I just want to put into context what we're talking about, because it's really easy to say, Mayor, and with all due respect, I like you. But that was a very politician answer. What, I'm it's, sorry, what specifically? The, the, we will consider and we will look. What, I'm, what, I'm, what we're saying is we're not interested in considering and looking. What we're saying is actually there's 50 million. Commit to 20 million cut. Right. Because we're sending money as the mayor of Syracuse. When you don't have a tax base, you're sending money out of Syracuse. And not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. Because their pensions, their health insurance, their families. So we are funding for other people's communities to have the promise of the American dream while we are denying it in our community. That's the context that you as the mayor have to look at this under. 
So when we talk about renegotiating union contract, what we're saying is you can't play around with maybe um, we will, no, y'all gotta go because you don't provide a service that is beneficial to the community, that is meaningful to the community. The services that you provide criminalize our community, impoverish our community, reallocate resources to suburbs. We are actually funding the suburbs, both in our police departments and in our schools. And to be clear, just to be clear, it's not just the fact of like the percentage of people, we're also funding what race of people on the police force. The percentage of race of teachers as well, superintendent, board president. So we want to put in context, because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. The, de the devil's in the data and in the details. Mayor, respectfully, it is not acceptable for us to be here considering. Over the course of almost 400 episodes of this podcast, we've spoken with musicians, producers, executives, actors, comedians, writers, mostly people related to the arts. But at the core of every guest story is their humanity. And while Yusuf Abdul-Qadir may not be at the top of the Billboard charts, he did go viral a few weeks ago. A two-minute clip of Yusuf speaking passionately and eloquently to city council leaders about police policies, spending, and officer accountability for Syracuse, New York, was gaining traction on the timeline. And by the way, shouts to Irv Benitez, whose post brought it to my attention. And not knowing who the speaker was, I kept digging and digging around the internet, and I found the entire three-hour and 40-minute public meeting on YouTube. And now, transfixed and inspired, I did help spread the word on Twitter and, and eventually reached out to see if we can have a conversation right here. And Jeff and I are honored to introduce to you now Yusuf Abdul-Qadir and salute you, Yusuf, on your leadership, your action, and your humanity. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I mean, I think it's super cool to, you know, be in the in the company of the various folks that you guys do discuss. But I, I'm I'm really, particularly now in the moment after having um, lost CT Vivian and John Lewis, I'm entirely humbled with being able to be a part of those who are in the fight to do as Mr. Um, Lewis says, you know, get into good trouble. So thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. Absolutely. And hey, if you are an artist of some sort, that that will be great. Yeah. We'll just get to that. You know, yeah, just drop your SoundCloud <laughs> link. <laughs> um, but but let's actually talk about that clip and and the, the two weeks since. What has that been like? What is viral success to you? And and how have things uh, moved forward for you and what you're looking to accomplish? Yeah. I think it's a really interesting question, right? Because um, I did not have, and I don't think any of us who were a part of that work, any intention of the moment going quote unquote viral. I think we understood intimately the power that was in that moment, the, I mean, in the three hours and 40 minutes, and we understood what we were trying to do with trying to model for our community, but as well as anyone who was gonna be watching what democracy should be looking like. I think for long, for too long, we've accepted a situation where public servants treat their constituents as if they're the ones who are in um, kind of authority in that sense, and, and and without recognizing that we give them that authority. That's right. I think we've relegated our status and our stature to being kind of subservient to the people who should be the quote unquote public servants. So it was really important for us that we 
interrogated, if you will, prosecuted a case against city officials to like demonstrate to the community that this is what this should be. And we didn't accidentally choose the council chambers. I mean, we specifically said we wanted to be there because we wanted to reclaim the gallery as the people's space. Mm. Because too often the conversations are, you can say your piece, but we don't have to respond. And then you go to the next person. And yeah. we wanted to change that paradigm. Um, so I, I'm less, um, I'm, I'm truly humbled that the likes of Ava DuVernay and Nicole Hannah-Jones and so many others, D.L. Hughley, Eddie Griffin, have shared the, the three-minute clip. Um, I think it's an expression as to what we mean when we talk about defunding police. I know that people are trying to make it about police residency, which it really is not about residency. But I think that it sits in a context of what is the kind of relationship that we have with law enforcement in our communities and how are how is law enforcement as an institution um, a part of a system that is plaguing black and brown communities in such devastating ways beyond the obvious excessive uses of force, beyond the obvious kind of militarized, occupied force way with which they engage in communities, but also the literal extraction of money out of majority low-income black and brown communities and into affluent suburban communities to provide opportunities that are denied for those that those officers are supposed to serve and protect. And Absolutely. I think that was really what was powerful, what resonated with communities around the country. And I think the most important word that was said was when you, you said, this is not a suggestion, this is a demand. And, and that gives the power back to the people, you know? And, and I think yeah. that that's something that uh, translates not just for the city of Syracuse, not just for the state of New York, but, but nationwide and, and certainly international, which is that, you know, you do have a voice in this and you do have a choice and you do have that power. And I thought that was exceptional. Well, and, and I just want to, you know, get back to the original question of, you know, we saw that this was, you've gotten a lot of national attention, um, but has anything happened on a local level since you uh, had that moment? I think we forced the administration to realize that, like, they can't continue with business as usual. I, I, you know, we have, and I think the intention behind our advocacy work and our organizing work has been to, to follow the process as closely as possible, right? So to try to do every single thing, because we knew there would be a moment. We didn't know it would be this moment. We didn't know that it would be connected to George Floyd. Syracuse has a significant history with issues and incidents of misconduct. So we, we thought that there would be something in Syracuse that would galvanize some kind of local response that we could say that, listen, we tried to work with you for the last, since you began your administration and you continue to make commitments and promises that you just don't fulfill. I don't think we understood that it would be situated and couched in a national crisis that we're seeing right now, a crisis that is being revealed. And so what it's done is it causes and it has caused us to be able to now hold the press accountable because even the press has wanted to paint the picture as taking the administration's word for it without doing their due diligence to like, you know, basic stuff like fact check. So the mayor says things like, you know, everyone in the country is talking about use of force policy, what we did it in Syracuse. What he fails to say is that like the NYCLU where I work sued the city of Syracuse so that they would change their use of force policy. 
what he fails to mention is that the use of force policy didn't just change because the mayor woke up one day and wanted to be benevolent, but because communities were demanding it. And what he further fails to say, particularly as it relates to chokeholds, is that his corporation counsel, which is the city's lawyers, fought tooth and nail in a lawsuit that we had against the city of Syracuse that dealt with a 15-year-old who was put in a chokehold, who almost suffocated, who lost consciousness, who was taken to the hospital and had a gash from the right bottom part of his chin to the left bottom part of his chin for a fight that he wasn't even involved in, and that the city lawyers fought that tooth and nail. And this young man didn't want anything. He didn't want notoriety. He didn't want fame. He didn't particularly want any money. He wanted to make sure that nobody else would have to experience this again. And the city's lawyers fought even that. And so when he presents this idea that he's done this and everyone else hasn't, and we're such leaders, the press just covers it as if it's fact without asking the critical questions. So we thought it was necessary. And what has been afforded us is the ability to say, and guess what, local press, you all need to be accountable because he will make comments that you all cover as facts while not actually verifying it. And we've seen a shift in how they've begun to, to, to cover this issue as well. Well, that does beg the question then, can you trust this leadership and how do you move forward with them? You know, last Thursday, thir- a few days ago, they provided the quote-unquote timeline to the timeline. Um, and we don't think that it's adequate. And we're going to be, you know, responding to that next Thursday we wanted they had two weeks to respond so we wanted to get two weeks to respond in kind and we don't find that their response adequate right simple things like you know a customer service customer relations type of piece of legislation that mind you again the city lawyers have stymied for a year that he could implement today which is codified in what's called the right to know act which folks from New York City may be familiar with uh, which really addresses when a law enforcement engages with a citizen, they have to tell them why they're being stopped, why they're searching them, provide a business card to the individual um, for when the officer um, has a, so that so that the citizen can know why they're being stopped, what they're being stopped for, who stopped them, and where they can go to file a complaint to the extent that they have one. And he could have just, pat- he could have done that as an executive order today. There's nothing that stops him from doing that. But he wants to wait till January 2021. And a lot of our demands that we've listed, they say we agree, but we have to do it within this timeline. And some things are, are kind of okay, but things like military equipment surplus program, the 1033 program, which is a federal program that shares equipment, military equipment and, and technologies of war with local law enforcement, they need until October to create an inventory. Why don't you know what you have now? And if you don't know what you have now, why are you using it? And if, if you don't have the training to use it, why do you still want to keep it? And I think that it's very difficult for us to trust that they're good faith actors and not trying to delay further because we've seen them delay and make promises and commitments and not fulfill it. And so I think it's going to be incumbent upon us to continue to keep the pressure and to continue to amplify the, the, the message that, you know, these aren't requests, these aren't inquiries, these aren't recommendations, these are demands, and we're not going to just go away. We're going to still be here to demand that it happens, and we're going to watch and keep the pressure up to make sure that it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, before we get into your actual personal story, if there's 
any organizations that you think of, um, you know, that you could just like say right now of, of you know, p- where people could either donate or people could uh, volunteer either on a local or national level? Um, I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to try not to direct people to where they should donate. And I know that a lot of folks, um, I don't think my development department will be excited about this, but <laughs> a, a lot of folks are asking me, you know, in fact, people sent me money. I'm like, I don't need your money. I make pretty good money. I'm a professor at the university. I'm also uh, a director at ACLU. I don't need any money. Send it to the local chapter of the National Action Network because they're trying to raise money for kids in the city of Syracuse during COVID who have to learn remotely and don't have devices. And what we see in the city of Syracuse juxtaposed to communities that are in the suburbs around Syracuse is that Syracuse City School District students aren't receiving the same kind of quality of education as their suburban peers are. Suburban students are receiving asynchronous Zoom kind of lectures where they are able to go on their computer or whatever device they have and see their peers and interact with their teachers, whereas Syracuse City School District students have PBS. And there's no interaction. There's no engagement. And furthermore, if you are from a family that's large, like I'm the youngest of eight kids, and there's only like one device in your whole home, how are all of those kids going to be able to engage in their educational learning? So what the local chapter of the National Action Network is trying to do is to raise funds to purchase our community members, which is absurd, right? Like, this is this is a kind of like an example of the study that we as community members have to raise money to provide things for our students that should be provided for them, but we don't have the money because we're spending so much money on law enforcement. Completely absurd. Um, yeah. And so I, I would encourage people to to send to that cause because I think it's really urgently needed. Um, and because COVID isn't likely going to go anywhere, unfortunately, anytime soon, I think it's really necessary that we give our kids in Syracuse a chance to learn like their kids in Janesville, DeWitt, Fayetteville, Manlius, and the other districts around the region. Yeah. Uh, so you you said you're the youngest of eight. Yeah. What What is, what is that like? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I'm like way the youngest. So like my... <laughs> The oldest is 22 years older than me. Wow. Um, and the second youngest is 10 years older than me. So, um, does oh, that, so you came out of nowhere. Yeah. Do, wait, does that make you essentially like an only child? In theory, it does. But my nieces and nephews are my age. So it's like I'm not an only child. Yeah. We grew up together in a, you know, you know, my, the first half of my childhood was spent living with my family, um, multi-generational, my siblings, their kids, my, my mother. Um and living in my mom's apartment in the Bronx, four-bedroom apartment in the Bronx, wow. with like 14 of us. Wow. So I was not the youngest in that case. <laughs> I was like the second oldest. Um, and then I was fortunate because my oldest brother, before my father died, um, he made a promise that, um, you know, that I would be taken care of and I would be okay. And my oldest brother and my sister-in-law obliged, um, you know, I think it's important to put in the context again, because this is so connected to like why I do what I do. Um, when I grew up in the Bronx, I was born in 86. and I grew up in the you know late 80s, 90s. The Bronx was an effect of war zone in many respects, whether it was the significant amount of gun violence, um, excessive amounts of police brutality um, or gang violence. It was 
really difficult to focus on just trying to be a kid and tr just trying to be a student. Um, and because we had underfunded schools, my mom really wanted me to have opportunities that I was a bright kid and I wouldn't have been able to get by staying in the Bronx. And because of my zip code, it precluded me from being able to have opportunities that I would, that I probably wouldn't be able to be here today in front of you. Um, and so my oldest brother obliged and my sister-in-law obliged and I lived with them for middle school and high school going between the Bronx and Spring Valley, New York. Um, and that's in, in Rockland County. Yes, it's in Rockland County, right across the Hudson. Um, for folks who are in New York City, it's where the Palisades Mall is. Yeah. Knows that. <laughs> um, like I used to work there in high school. At the, um, at the Palisades? It's, it, yeah, but it's, it's, oh, because, it's because I went there that I had a chance to kind of grow to the person that I was today. The disparities between city and suburban life is, are real. And I, I've become committed to those causes because it made me question you know, why is it that I had to live with my mom in order for me to be where I am today? Why did my zip code have to dictate these opportunities? And I just, I don't think that's, that should be the case in the United States of America. That's, it's morally bankrupt. And I don't think that's what a free society should be like. Yeah. So as a, as a middle schooler, what is it like to leave everything that you know in the Bronx and go across the Tappan Zee Bridge and start all over again? It was tough. I mean, ironically, for the first year, I couldn't sleep because I was so used to the noise. Like, yeah, that yeah. like crickets were freaking me out. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> I hear every every creak in the floor and every bug that there is to hear. Um, and it, it it wasn't as if like you know we were rich because my oldest brother was a you know a union member in local. I think 751, he was a, he was an iron worker. And, mm. and, uh, and so he's a construction person. And my sister-in-law um, worked her way up um, and works, you know, as a systems analyst um, for Department of Homeland Security um, on the immigration side where she, you know, manages projects, et cetera, both of whom have GEDs. So like they grew up at a time when, you know, you, you could, you know, genuinely, though difficult, still aspire to be in the American dream. And they're the first homeowners in our family. Wow. Um, and so though I definitely had opportunities, we still struggled, right? I mean, it wasn't easy to just go from the South Bronx to the suburbs and adjust. So it was a big adjustment. Um, but, and it was most difficult because I didn't live with my mom. Um, and I missed her terribly and always you know, try to make sure that um, that relationship didn't, um, you know, sour. And, you know, it, it, it was tough, but I understood surprisingly that it was for the best for me. And, and while I struggled with it, I'm appreciative for having had the chance because as I reflect on some of my peers and even some relatives, I've been able to do amazing things from being invited to the White House from President Obama um, to being an advisor at the United Nations and now being the director of the ACLU of New York, Central New York chapter, um, and being an adjunct faculty in the Syracuse University, uh, my alma mater. Um, I don't know that I would have, maybe I would have had those opportunities, but I don't know that I would have. And I don't know that I would have been able to have appreciated it as much um, if I didn't have that juxtaposition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my, um, 
in in doing some like light research on your life, I think one of the more formative moments of your life was uh, the when you ran for student body president in your high school. <laughs> yeah, I uh, you know I I didn't really I think what what it, what made me want to do it was just um, the idea that you know student body president of the senior class really just focuses on prom, right? There's other things you do, but like prom, <laughs> prom is really like the, the kind of like golden ticket. Like you're like in charge of creating that. And I thought the, the opponent at the time, um, I hope he doesn't hate me. His name is Anthony Caputo. He probably hates me, but it's okay. Um, he, I wait, did you run a negative campaign? <laughs> abs- absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think on the contrast is I tried to show the beauty of the diversity that we had in our school um, and the need for us to be inclusive. Um, and so I was fortunate because, you know, um, I had just visited my mom and my mom, even though she was 40 when she had me, um, was always up on tech for some reason. Like <laughs> she's, se- she's 74 and has like every iPhone. She has a MacBook. She has every kind of like technological feet and advancement and it's amazing does she does she text you emojis uh she texts me she's visually impaired so it's tough Mm. but she does it and it's like i'm like i don't have any like i kind of like wait a second don't use age because my mom is literally blind in her right eye wow and still is on instagram so (laughs) uh, um so but she she had a color printer um and like i printed my campaign stuff in color and that like showed serious dedication and i talked about in our um announcement just wanting to have a a prom that was inclusive and not kind of just focused on the white students in our kind of student body but really all of the breadth of diversity that we had um and you know i really campaigned like i worked hard to try to get every vote and tried to be a fair representative of everyone and even though um he lost i i said hey like i would like for you to be on the prom committee um and he was like wow. so I, inclu- I included him into that group so i think is a team of rivals yeah team of rivals right i actually influenced obama to yeah. <laughs> but also i mean like i think that one of the things that i read was that there was um that that he was so popular and someone was trying to discourage you from running because he was so popular so that was in 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 university um and so my my sophomore year of college, um, I you know I was an active student leader, um, and um, you know the person and ironically he was another African American male. He was on the like the captain of the cheerleading squad, um, and he was also pres- a vice president of an organization called University Union, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the university um, production like student led. Like Syracuse University student organizations have like $1.5 million to dole out between student groups. So UU was the organization I put on the concerts, but it was such disparity between how much money they were funded, juxtaposed to like minority and organizations that were led by students of color. And so at the time, there was a lot of issues on campus, ironically, as there still are today, um, where there were comments about you know, one, there was a, I think it's called, it was called Citrus TV, or maybe it was renamed to be Citrus TV. I forget, but, or it was Hill TV. I think it was, 
and renamed Citrus TV, but it was a student-led um, television show that had a lot of racially insensitive programming. One of them was a clip that said, you know, back in the night, today you see the quad and it's diverse and people are throwing frisbees and it was lovely imagery. And then it was like, but back in the 1900s, the quad looked different. And then it showed a lynching. Jesus. What? And then they said those were the good old days. Jesus. And, and so like there was like an uproar upon student and it kind of demonstrated the kind of problems that existed on a largely private white institution that Syracuse University was. And I kind of was, people told me like, you have to run because you're this voice for students. And like, you really, you really capture the concerns of students of color. Um, and I ran and, you know, he was a year ahead of me and I ran on what I thought was a good campaign and I lost by a few votes. But what I learned, and he was very popular, like, so he, you know, he was able to, because he is a captain of the cheerleading squad, use the dome mm-hmm. to put all of, and the Caradome is like infamous, right? To, to put like his campaign information on every seat in the dome. Well, I can't do that. Like, that's <laughs> like, or he could be on ESPN, like with his campaign, like, well, that's kind of like, I can't really beat that, you right. know? Um, but I came really close. And what I learned, though, was that though I didn't win, I was actually kind of in some respects more powerful than he was because I had a whole coalition of people that had been inspired and joined the assembly. And in order for him to get anything done, he kind of had to work with me and the members of the assembly. Otherwise, the assembly wouldn't really vote for what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a lesson on what what power is it can be and that power doesn't just have to be with the person who is in the quote-unquote head position that in fact that there are different types of power and that there's more power in the collective oftentimes than in a figurehead totally and there's lots of different ways to influence and do good works so where did leadership enter your life and how does that play into your decision to run for high school office i think every time that i've to run for something it's because people have called on me to run or have like said like we need you to do this and a part of it comes from like my religious background like i'm muslim that's Mm -hmm. not a secret like i'm pretty vocally muslim Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and in islam we have this idea that like people who seek positions shouldn't get it but it should be the people who call on you to do it um and so i kind of like of course, I have aspirations and ambitions, but I've, I've struggled with trying to not be the person who seeks those positions, rather who responds to the calls to rise to a moment. Um, and I think in both instances, um, it's, it's really largely been seeing that like there is a void in leadership here. And while I may not want to be a person, because to be frank with you, I really don't like to be interviewed but <laughs> i don't really like no offense you guys are nice no forget um, it this interview is over. we are not nice anymore right um but i just I, I i tend to like recognize that i have a lot to say and that i have to say it but i don't necessarily want to always be the one to say it um but there are moments when i have to say it um because if i don't then then am I standing firmly for justice as I'm kind of compelled to do so? Um, And am I really fighting for what needs to be fought for? Or am I just standing silent, watching something I see is wrong happening without engaging and getting in the arena? Um, I think it's really easy to be on the sidelines um, 
and talking about a problem, but it's really difficult um, to get in the arena. And I feel sometimes that while I appreciate um, standing on the sidelines and being an observer, that it's important to put your talents to use by getting in the arena. I just want to be clear. Are we throwing shots at the cheerleader who was actually standing <laughs> on the sides of the arena? Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I went to Syracuse University and I was drawn up there because I wanted to be a feature filmmaker, right? And, yeah. you know, I obviously uh, went, you know, and tried to get into Newhouse, did not, ended up over across the quad in visual performing arts. And that was amazing for me and the rest of my life. What drew you to Central New York and, and Syracuse Uni- University specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So um, the second youngest, um, the one who is 10 years older than me, and ironically, his birthday is like the day before mine. Um, so he's 10 years and a day older than me. <laughs> um, he, um, he went to Syracuse as well. Um, and I had gone to Syracuse like many years um, because of the things that I'd seen um, growing up between the disparities, I was in a program called Today's Students, Tomorrow's Teachers that um, that like was a guaranteed scholarship program for students who um, would be enrolled in, edu- in an education program and who graduate with an education major. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, I definitely wanted to be a teacher, but I loved politics and political science. So I wanted to be a social studies teacher, but I wanted to also get into other things. Um, and Syracuse afforded through their secondary education program a dual major where I could still do the education track and therefore keep my scholarship, but also still do other things that interested me. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why I went to Syracuse. The second reason uh, was because, um, you know, after applying to like 20 schools and getting into like all of them, um, I felt most comfortable at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. There was something about Syracuse that resonated with me. I mean, clearly I, I love it so much that I've like gotten my bachelor's and my <laughs> master's from there. Um, met my wife in Syracuse. Um, and so it's very much you bleed orange. Close. Yeah. <laughs> I bleed literally. Bleed orange. Um, and so it's really close to my heart. And I think I, I, I not every, I have like a love hate relationship with Syracuse and that it's, there have been difficult times. Um, but I think that there were opportunities that I was afforded in going to Syracuse um, because of the resources it has, because of the brand recognition it has, um, the friends that I've made, the abroad experiences I've had, being an adjunct faculty that I think um, really spoke to me and the, the values that the university has that it may not always uphold, um, you know, about, you know, what is, what is the, the phrase like science, uh, excuse me, knowledge crown those who pursue it, mm-hmm. the diversity initiatives that it has, I think really spoke to me. And, and, you know, I got like a 99% scholarship. So like, how do you turn that down? Sure. I think there's a lot that Syracuse can do for a student. And the way I looked at it was how can I use the school and not let the school use me? Yeah. You know, there's, there's opportunities to grow socially, certainly. And, and one can learn a bunch from the faculty and from the curriculum, but a really important benefit of being at an institution like that are the types of people who come in and, and speak to you and show you something beyond school that can inspire you to move forward. And for me, I met Barry Diller 
and Doris Kearns Goodwin and Tay Diggs, who who all opened my eyes in in different ways. Were there one or two people who sat down in front of you and you thought you're a real human, you're an adult, you're accomplished in this field? I want to get in. I I can be you. Um, that's a tough question. Um, I think I think throughout my tenure at Syracuse. And I think it's important to talk about this, right? That there are certain ways that students of color are kind of not exposed to those opportunities and experiences. I mean, there's a whole like thing about professors taking students under their wing and like helping them and connecting them with their networks that like I never heard about until I graduated. And I'm like, wow, like that's fucking great that <laughs> like professors do that. Um, and you know, I mean, it's why I have this kind of love-hate relationship because I think my experience was really largely centered around kind of student activism um, and the way that, like, my the people that I look up to are the people that were years ahead of me, people like Alan Frimprong, who is, like, a national organizer, who is, like, three grades ahead of me or something like that. Um, Travis Mason, who is like now, I guess, a vice president at Boeing, who like was like the first, if I recall, black student president of the student body. Um, you know, people like that who have had like kind of those relationships with me to like tell me and like help help nurture me while I was a student, more so than like the large celebrity type folks. I mean, there's definitely been amazing celebrities that have come in um, and that have been a part of the experience that Syracuse has offered, I just, I don't know if I was really too um, focused on that as a student, if I'm honest, I was really more focused on building, building something with people on the ground that I thought was really powerful and then, and then in community. Uh, I went to school in, at Boston University and like the way that that campus is set up, it's, it's very, it's one street. And so, like, you know, you're, you, you, you do have the opportunity to obviously experience Boston as a larger city, but for the most part, you're really stuck in one place. You know, uh, Syracuse has a, a large insulated campus. How, when did you first, like, start going out into greater Syracuse and, like, understanding the way that the actual city worked? Freshman year, like, first semester. Um, partly because, again, the School of Education... Um, gets you engaged very early on where you start doing kind of your student teaching work like really early. A lot of programs, that was another reason why I went because, you know, I would hate to like my last year of school to learn that, oh, I don't really like this student teaching stuff. Why <laughs> did I just spend the last four years in education? Um, so I got involved really early on. I was given a job um, after after a lobbying visit, so I have to give a shout out to Sarah Mar Sylvia Martinez de Loya, who um, gave me a job and like had faith in me um, as a kind of coordinator for Liberty Partnership Program, which is a state funded program to help students, you know, and after school programs, but help to kind of facilitate to facilitate to bring them into higher education. Um, and so I, I was at a lobby visit defending. Um, of funding for these kinds of programs and she was impressed with what I was saying and then offered me a job. And that job gave me the chance to kind of really get in the community. So I was working at the Spanish Action League and then I was working at um, 
you know, Dunbar, which is an African-American community center and, and in schools like Shea Middle School and others. And I was running out the school programs and coordinating projects and developing youth services programs. And I mean, I was like since freshman year. And um, it's those relationships and those jobs that got me really committed to Syracuse and getting off the hill um, really got me to understand that, wow, like, if I'm trying to understand, which is what I went to the academy to do, why are people in poverty and the solutions and tools that are necessary to get people out of poverty, how can I not be involved and engage in a community that has the highest concentration of poverty amongst Blacks and Latinos in the country um, and is the ninth most segregated county in the country? It's, it was one thing to be in the academy. It's another thing to really, truly take scholarship in action and actually do the work as well as learning and understanding because it influenced both my knowledge of the issues as well as um, you know how I viewed and understood the magnitude of the work that I was engaged in. Well, those numbers can seem insurmountable, I would think. How did you see a path forward for your, your adopted city? You know, it's, it's a good question because Syracuse is, it has a lot of challenges and a lot of issues. It's small enough where you could really do some great work, but large enough where that work could be meaningful and it can be replicated um, and can be um, furthered and whereby you're able to have real impact. And I think that's what I was wanting to do, right? Like I wanted to um, engage in doing the work and understanding the work and supporting the work and being involved in the work. And I think Syracuse afforded me that opportunity. So you end up getting your bachelor's degree at Syracuse University. You stay and get your master's degree at Syracuse University. Did you foresee spending your entire adult life in central New York and Syracuse, New York specifically? So not really, because I left. Um, <laughs> I left to go back to New York and then a congressman uh, was running for re-election. And so I came back um, and he lost re-election to a tea partier. Oh my God. So I was like, shit, I just literally packed my entire apartment in a, in a U-Haul truck, gave up my lease and drove down and moved back home and lived home for a good six months before I put everything back in my truck and drove back up. And the guy lost. And I was like, to be honest with you, like depressed for like a day and a half. I was like, okay, like get your ass together and figure it out. And so I began to like figure out what am I going to do over the next five, 10, 15 years and committed to creating a timeline of that. Um, and I'm really fortunate because I got an opportunity to have a fellowship that got me to do some work in sustainable development and environmental justice issues, um, working on environmental laws in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, and then working closely with the Onondaga Nation, which is um, yep. the central fire of the Haudenosaunee. Form, like, kind of, they don't like to be referred to as the Iroquois Confederacy, but more kind of commonly known as the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, and working with them on their clean technology company called Plantagon. Um, and then I went back to New York again to work at the UN as an advisor to the government of Panama before moving back to Syracuse. And... Um, taking this job actually like almost exactly five years ago as a director here at the ACLU of New York. So there's, um, I think a lot of people who are going through this same conundrum right now where, 
you know, they've lost a job, they're young, they're directionless, and and they have this push and pull as to how much time can they sit there and feel bad for themselves, and then what can I, you know, do next? Um, how did you figure out that, you know, you would give yourself that day and a half after after the, the failed, um, you know, candidacy, and, and how did you formulate you know what? What it seems to me a bigger plan in in drawing up the next fifteen years of your life at that point. Yeah, um, I thought it was important to really think about what is it that I wanted to do and what role did I want to play in the world. And um, I really, I felt that it was incumbent upon me to like be involved in the work. You know. I, I think oftentimes we, you know, aspire to do things, but, and what, one of my biggest criticisms about politicians is that like, they often are in positions, but have not done the work. So don't really know what it is that they're doing um, and follow whatever someone tells them who really has a particular set of interests. And I knew that public service was always going to be a part of what I wanted to do. Uh, and so I felt that, I needed to figure out what that pathway looked like. And fortunately, opportunities opened up and pathways emerged. And I, you know, kind of was able to ride everything that went along that. And um, I think it's important for people to like sit back and take an inventory of like, and I do this a lot with young people that I work with, that if you were to live to like 95 years old and your family's around you, and I have this vision with them, visioning exercise with them where I tell them to close their eyes. And I say, like, you're 95 years old and your family's around you by your bed and you blink your eyes and you're, you can see everything that happened in your life. And you can say to yourself, I have lived a fulfilling life before you inevitably, not to be morbid, but die. What was everything that you would have been able to say that would make you feel content with what you've done in your life? And then go backwards from 95 to think about what that needed to be. And it's not a hard, like, I have to do this, I have to do that. It's more of like helping you to think through what is it that you want to achieve in life and what are the doors that you need to be paying attention to so that when they present themselves, you're able to walk through them. And, and how much of this was shaped by the loss of your father at an early age? Oh, it, it absolutely is. Almost everything is intimately connected with the loss of my father. Um, I care about the issues I care about because my father and my mother were very active in those areas. You know, ironically, my, one of my father's good friends from law school, my father died shortly before he could ever practice law. Um, my, 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 one of my father's friends from law school said to me uh, when he saw the video that um, it reminded him like of, of my father, um, like that way with which he spoke, that way with which he engaged and apparently I looked just like him. And that, that really humbled me because I don't really have a memory of how he spoke or how he was or how he engaged. And I've always imagined and, and have had imaginary conversations with myself about, you know, if would what I'm doing make my father proud? Man. Um, and that juxtaposition has helped me to make different decisions in my life. And it's helped me to navigate um, life a little differently. Uh, we we lost our dad ten years ago, so he was uh, you know sorry for your loss. Thank you, and and sorry for yours. Um, but different circumstances, certainly, right? Um, our our dad, you know, uh, died when we were were young, but not that not that young. And yeah, do you ever have the thought where it's like, 
And and it's 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 so weird to think about. But do you ever consider that maybe you wouldn't be the person you are today if that event had not happened? I mean, I'm kind of certain, right? Like, I mean, it's difficult to say because like we can't go in the time machine and like figure it out. But not yet. Um, <laughs> what? What? Yeah, not yet. But um, what? What I? What I reflect on is my father would have been an attorney, right? My brother went the second youngest went would have gone to college the next year um and i would have been an only child with a father who was a lawyer and a mother who was a social worker mm. my father's friends were like you know the black lawyer class of new york city um kind of black political class so those would have been the people that i would have been friends with and i would have probably had a way more privileged life <laughs> by far than what i currently do now and though my father would have probably been engaged in social justice issues and political issues I wouldn't have understood what being hungry is like, right? I wouldn't have understood what um, poverty is like. I wouldn't have understood what not having is like. And though, you know, we grew up technically impoverished, I don't know that I, um, I don't know that we weren't fortunate in that we were loved so much that my my mother as well as my brother and sister-in-law provided for us and they struggled a significant amount. Um, you know, I, I I just wouldn't have had the kind of juxtapositions, those realizations, those moments of um, struggle to be appreciative, to understand what's at stake for people as intimately as I do now. Well, I say this as somebody who has always existed on like the very far left of the political spectrum, but in quarantine, I've become a full-on socialist. <laughs> you know, is there any way to take out the the luck of circumstance you know like the the idea that if you're born in one place it's going to be you know like good or privileged or whatever but then if you move to somewhere else then it's your your options are super limited you know is there any way to even out that playing field i know that we're obviously working towards that but like will we ever get there i think we can i think we choose not to right as a country we haven't embraced really i mean we've kind of talked about it we have tokenism we have selective moments in our history um we really need to and i think we're in the cusp of a third reconstruction um where we really need to reconstruct what it is that our social contract means because for so long our social contract hasn't included all of us particularly black brown and indigenous peoples and women but it hasn't been inclusive. And I think what we're beginning to understand, I mean, even now, right, like research is telling us, polls are telling us and studies are telling us that like 50% of Americans are beginning to believe. I'm like, I don't know why it took 400 years, but <laughs> at least finally 56% of Americans are saying that black and brown people are, they believe America is racist towards them. Mm -hmm. And there's an awakening that's happening where people are like, no, this is not okay. And I think what COVID has done as it's forced us to reckon with this because we have to. We don't get a chance to just go out and live our days normally and ignore it. We have to actually sit and think with the numbers of people that are dying, that are disproportionately black and brown, the numbers of people that are losing their jobs that are disproportionately black and brown, the number of people that are first responders, excuse me, that are, that are, that are, that are um, what's On the, the front word? lines. Essential, yes, essential yeah, workers, workers yeah. right? Um, that are black and brown, right? Like we can see the disparities and then we see what happened to Ahmaud Arbery and then we see what happened to Breonna Taylor 
Taylor, and then we see what happens to George Floyd and we and the others that have that we know of and that we don't know of. And yeah. It's like there's something critically and fundamentally wrong. And then we have a fascist white supremacist five-year-old as the president of the United States. Um, and I think it's that kind of culmination of things that has awakened people to realizing that there's something fundamentally wrong and flawed in our system. What I hope, though, is that people don't just attribute it to Trump and say that once he's gone, oh my God. knocking on wood, that it's all fixed, that there's actually something endemic in our society that creates and facilitates for a Trump. Yusuf, you're a father, and yep. I'm sure, you know, neither one of us are, but I'm sure that everything that comes with bringing a child into this world is beautiful and changes your life and is all positive. But as a black man in America, how nervous were you to bring a black child into America? You know, it is. Uh, so when I watched When They See Us, and I knew the story of the Exonerated Five because I grew up in New York, and so mm-hmm. we know about this story. But the first, you know, episode of the docuseries, I just was like heartbroken. And I was like, I don't think I want a son. And that like devastated me because, you know, every guy wants a son. By the way, being a father of a daughter first is like the most amazing thing <laughs> in the world. Um, just just our relationship. I love everything about it. Um, I love everything about her, her independence, her brilliance, her charm how funny she is how very um uh the boss she is um <laughs> it's 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 everything about it is amazing and it's changed me profoundly um, and it's continuing to change me but i would be dishonest if i didn't say every guy doesn't want a son at least i know i did and i do but that movie makes me fear do i really want a son and it's it's not that black girls don't also experience those issues or black trans people don't also experience those issues. It's that I know what it's like to have grown from being a black boy to being a black young man to being a black man. And it's tough. It's really tough. And it, it's, it's scary, but it makes me say that I have to fight and get involved in these issues. And I can't just be on the sidelines and I have to be in the arena to make sure that those issues are mitigated for them and everyone else's children. Because uh, it's not just about my own family; it's about every other, fa- everyone else's family. You know, the the family of the child who's undocumented, the family of you know the the child with disability, the family of the child who's trans, the family of the child who um, is low income, the family of the child who's Muslim, the family of the child, wh- whatever you want to attribute a marginalized community to, that it is incumbent upon all of us. And I feel truly committed to this work to making sure that I commit and dedicate my life to upending these issues and working intimately and deeply in the arena to rectify them. Yeah. And I going back to the video clip from a couple of weeks ago, I, I know that the, the bigger picture was not just about the police officers not living in the city of Syracuse. But I do have to ask you, um, is there something to when you live in your city, you fight harder for your city to be better? You know, I struggle with this answer because, of course, it's better to have those who, you know, represent you being from the city that you work in. But I think what we know is that policing is an institution. It doesn't matter if you live in the city that you serve. And it doesn't necessarily matter if you're of the race of the people that you serve. That is something in the institution that facilitates for this type of behavior. 
And right. I think it will be dishonest to say that because a police officer lives in the city of Syracuse, that they're going to behave any differently than necessarily police officers who live in the suburbs. Right. Yeah. There might be more animus, but really there's something endemic in the institution of policing itself that facilitates that warrior cop mentality. A, a thousand percent. The reason that I asked, though, is because, you know, you're 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 not born in Syracuse. You've made Syracuse yep. your city and now you are raising your daughter in Syracuse. And yes. when, when I see you speak, I'm like, man, like Yusuf is passionate about the place where he is going to, you know, maybe stay forever and and certainly start your daughter's life there. And I see the passion and I see the, the power come from that. And I wanted to know if that's because you love Syracuse so much that you want to make it better. I mean, it's certainly I think that people who care about a place that they live in want to make it better. And I definitely think there are officers who want to who are in the service because they want to make Syracuse better. And that's their contribution. But I think we're talking about something more profound than individual actors, right? I think we distill the conversation to individual actors, which is important, but really misses the point about the institution itself and how the institution really facilitates for the maintenance of white supremacy and facilitates for the extraction of resources outside of urban cores that are majorly black and brown. And it's that narrative about why is it that we spend $50 million on law enforcement, but we, what we have to use GoFundMe to open up a pool in the summer, mm. right? Why don't we have money for basic resources, but we have money to, to deploy 500 police officers for a 2,000 peaceful crowd that there was literally no incident for and have all types of military and other technology and equipment? Why is it that we can't, in these moments, rise to the occasion, but we can cut from the school budget? And it's those questions that we ask because it's essential for us to understand how it exists within an ecosystem of policies and practices that plague and, and, and really impact black and brown people. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's it's become um, a, a, a mission, I think, certainly in the last five months um, to to focus on local politics, local elections, local change. Um, and, you know, that's where you can make the the most serious impact and then, you know, go up and up the ladder. And um, for for you, you're somebody who's worked on a national and an international level already. Where do you sort of see your focus moving forward? I mean, the work is, you know, national, but also transnational. Um, I don't I don't see them as disconnected. I actually see them as a part of a of a system of layers. And it's like an, an onion that when you peel the onion back, that each layer facilitates for this. And I saw this really well when I worked at the UN uh, because I saw that the transnational issues that affect black and brown people in the US are very much the same issues that affect black and brown people around the world. Um, and so I think it's really important that we see the solidarity of oppressed peoples around the world as a part of a global, kind of really um, a global uh, paradigm that facilitates for these outcomes. And so. I am intimately involved in the issues in Syracuse, but I'm also intimately involved in the issues globally. Um, and whether it's issues on climate justice and environmental justice um, or in racial justice, because I see them as kind of a, a coexisting challenge that has to be addressed and met at every front. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from the very sober conversation that we've had over the past 50 minutes. I think that it's 
an important conversation that we're having. Um, it's, it's something that we don't often address on our podcast uh, explicitly. But I do have to ask, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, uh, are there any good movies that you've seen recently? Are you do you watch the same bullshit that I watch? Like, <laughs> how do you keep things light around wow, you? Wow, what have I, what have I watched lately? Um, so my wife is from Bangladesh, and um, last night we just finished the Indian Matchmaker on Netflix. Oh it my was god, pretty funny. yeah, it was pretty good. Um, and, you know, we try to watch things that are, like, relevant to both of our cultures, um, you know, and she's such a huge supporter of anti-Black racism within the South Asian community and an advocate on that. I don't think it's just because she has a Black husband, but certainly, you know, her, her commitment to it is probably amplified because she has a Black husband and she has mixed children. Um, but we, you know, that was the last thing that, like, if I can pull up the top of my head, the last thing that I watched. Um, and, and actually, we finished it last night. Um, there, there's a bunch of like Netflix stuff that like we just binge watch, binge watch and like, you know, we do spend a lot of time because I love, I used to act, so I love theater. I love oh, so acting. you are an artist. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I was a poet. I was an artist. I played three instruments. I used to dance. Oh my God. Then I got into politics and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, um, but I do think politics in some respects is kind of, um, theatrics in some respects too i think that moment was um and i don't want to i don't want to reduce it but i think it's a very um the stage was the common council chambers uh and we were aware of who our audience was um and so it was important to demonstrate to the audience um by using all the tools within our toolbox including understanding how to articulate the issues in a way that shows the power of the moment. Um, I wouldn't say that it was acting because it definitely wasn't acting. It was people really passionate and committed and driven to understanding the issues and trying to demonstrate effectively with a number of mediums why the issues are so powerful and important. But I, but I do think that there are tools of like oratory skills that you get from acting that, 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 that I bring or rhetoric that you bring to the conversation because you understand that it's a medium for communication and it's essential for that to happen. Yeah, from from Syracuse stage to the Syracuse City Council Chambers, you know? Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Listen, Yusuf, uh, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. It was, it was you know, really just uh, amazing to, to see you get that message across that it is happening in a, a city that's very close to my heart. Um, you know, gave me some 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 air and some light. And uh, since we since we have your number now, your three one five number. Uh, I hope this is a conversation that we can keep going in the not too distant future. Um, I think there's a lot to be spoken about. This is a a a time for that, and you are the person for that. And we appreciate you. And uh, we're sending our love to you and yours and everybody up in in the Salt City. And uh, and until next time, uh, be well. Thank you so much. I would be remiss if I didn't shout out the various other people who were involved in this work. Um, this is a work that's done through collective action, um, and we do everything through consensus. And I think that organizing model is what we also want to bring to the table. So thank you to the people who were a part of that three hours and 40 minutes and who are still in the work. And thank the two of you for allowing me to have this conversation uh, and to be a part of the discussion, both nationally as well as showcasing Syracuse as a community that can show how these things can get done. Mm -hmm.
Thanks everyone for listening to this new episode of A Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You are Jeff with the glasses and the birthday. Together, we are It's The Real, no apostrophe, no spaces. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called A Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about what's going on with us. Where can they go? You can always go to patreon.com slash it's the real to contribute to everything that we are doing we are also at it's the real.com it's the real.com slash shop for all of our wares including our new t-shirts uchi wally zerbiak stone cold stunna and michelle rich homie kwan yes all great t-shirts all all sizes uh, you can also find us on Twitter at It's The Real and Instagram at It's The Real. We are also on YouTube.com slash It's The Real. And lastly, most importantly, if you are looking for more episodes of this podcast, if you're like, hey, I like this episode, but there has to be more of this, <laughs> guess what? There, there are, are like 400 more episodes that you can catch up on yeah. on any streaming platform. I'm talking about the one that you are currently listening to right now as well as a bunch of other ones that you may not even know of. Shout out to all the people who are like, hey, I like you guys. What do I search? Guys, it's the real. Search anything. Just, it's the real. Yeah. That's it. Don't care. Go do it. I don't care how you find us, but you will find us. Jeff, now is the time of the podcast where we love to shout people out. Who do you want to shout out today? I want to shout out, first of all, everybody who joined our Patreon Zoom call this week and who made a special effort to make me feel special for my birthday oh a birthday zoom well first of all it's a it, I, I hate it's a zoom i hate birthday zooms celebrating i hate, I hate zooms in general there's a birthday zoom but i did enjoy the conversation that was had that did not focus totally on me and it, it was not like hey now you say something nice it about was me. advertised as a birthday zoom no it was People advertised showed as up it's the real zoom and by the way it is my hats. birthday there were two people in birthday hats. It was your birthday. Shout out to Olivia. Shout we out to Emily, who both wore birthday hats for me. This was your birthday. Although, Zoom. honestly, they didn't say whether or not they would be wearing those birthday hats, even if there was not a birthday Zoom. It, it, this wasn't mandatory. No, I'm just saying that maybe like they were just casually wearing birthday hats, and then it happened to be my birthday. Do you keep a Christmas tree up when it's not Christmas? No, but I know people who do. <laughs> I know that Loki has drink his, eggnog. I know that Loki drinks eggnog in like year round. Yeah, Jeff, I want to shout out our friend Shinsuke Ikeda. Shin is taking us to Costco today. He is a member over there, and you and I, who I'm sure at some point in our lives were like, "What? A big box store like that? I will never shop there. Yeah. I will never get some generic Kirkland shirt. I will never get some generic Kirkland." olive oil i will never get anything from that giant store wait online have a big cart get things on a pallet and take it home and use it a year later never 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 well guess what (laughs) guess what we're doing shout out to shin who is a great friend regardless of whether he's a member at at costco he's a fantastic friend we're not just using him for his membership but it does help yeah (laughs) i will say it does help i um There, there are benefits to being a member yeah to being friends with shinsuke that's right uh, yeah, I definitely did tell Dad. I said, "Hey, by the way, this is like Costco's. Uh, it's gonna be the downfall of society. Like this is this is Wally before Wally. Like I was just like, man, this store sucks. Yeah. Now I'm you know 30 some odd years old, and I'm just like, you wanna know what? <laughs> having a bu- right. yeah, having a budget sucks. How about how about uh, working within those margins? That's right. 
Shout yeah. out to uh, Shinsuke for that. Uh, shout out to Dad for being right, as he was. And, uh, and shout out to everybody who is here rocking with us week in and week out and sometimes twice a week. Jeff, as always, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. See you guys next week. Bye.